This fall, we're studying the Apostles' Creed, a passionate pledge of allegiance to our Lord declared by Christians all over the globe for 2,000 years. Each line of the Creed proclaims another of God's amazing attributes. He's our Father, our Creator, our Savior, who paid the price for our sin and now prays for us daily. These are beautiful truths that we're eager to announce because surely everybody else would love God as much as we do if only they could see the God we've come to know. What's not to like? From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Oh yeah, that's the part that people don't like, the, the judgmental God. You know, like labeling somebody a racist, calling someone judgmental is among the most damning insults we can make today. No one wants to be thought of that way. So we take pains to signal that we celebrate everyone. Even some government legislators are reducing felonies to misdemeanors, while prosecutors are refusing to convict people of crimes because they're too enlightened to be so unkind. We really hate being judgmental these days. Sort of. Because at the same time, we rush to condemn people as racist, sexist, ageist, ableist, fundamentalist, fatphobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, transphobic, anti-Semitic, and more. On social media, people race to declare their outrage at anyone on the other side of any issue. Instead of being curious why someone might see the war in the Middle East or the immigration debate differently, we immediately condemn them usually by calling them Nazis. So while we say that we hate judgment, we've become extremely judgmental, often of people we perceive to be judging someone else. Every day, it seems that I read about another company, celebrity, being canceled, our version of excommunication. A prominent Jewish leader observed that in our culture, judging evil has become worse than actually doing evil. Even stranger, we hate judgment, but we long for justice. We're eager to see those we decide are evil brought to justice, a trigger-happy cop, human traffickers, overpaid CEOs, lecherous men, or the crazy Karens caught in viral videos. Each week, it seems that people are protesting another injustice, but carrying the same sign no justice, no peace. And our obsession with justice goes far beyond our politics. It's shaped our pop culture. Among the longest-running TV shows is The People's Court, which was recently surpassed by rival Divorce Court. Along the way, it had to compete with Judge Judy, Judge Mathis, Hot Bench, and Lauren Lake's Paternity Court. And don't get me started with all the cop shows. NCIS and all its spin-offs, Law & Order and all its spin-offs, Blue Bloods, The Wire, The Shield, and SWAT, so many more. One of the leading podcast genres is true crime. We want to see the bad guy brought to justice. And this leaves us with a, a dilemma. We long for justice, but we despise judgment. And this creates a theological quandary too. If you poll American unbelievers about why they don't like God, the two most common answers are that he allows such evil and that he's so judgmental. Do you see the irony? They're upset because God allows evil 
and because he condemns it. This is a theological third rail because no matter whether we say that God permits evil or punishes it, he looks bad. So this line of the creed claiming that Jesus will come to judge is a bit uncomfortable for some Christians today, maybe for some of us. So why did the earliest Christians who wrote the Apostles' Creed think it was such great news that they featured it in this list of things they loved about Jesus? And it's not just them. The Bible celebrates God's judgment hundreds of times. Like Psalm 9 that we read earlier, so many of the Psalms are begging God to come judge us. They can't wait for judgment. And the New Testament mentions Jesus' second coming to judge the earth over 300 times. One out of every 13 verses in the New Testament refers to Jesus' return. In 1 Samuel, the people demanded God give them a king who could judge them. Why would anybody want a judge? I feel so judged already by my neighbors and by strangers and colleagues and myself. Why would I want another judge? Because life is so unfair. We want somebody to make it right. If you get fouled in a basketball game, you're desperate for the ref to see it and bring justice. Players appeal for a better ref if the first one isn't paying attention or doesn't seem fair. Because what's the point of playing if people who cheat always get away with it? On a much bigger scale, isn't this the same anger that many minorities feel at the hands of police and people on both sides of the conflict in the Middle East? They feel violated and they long for someone to make it right. But how do we decide what's right? Because your version of justice can be very different depending on which side you're on or which parts of the story you know. Are the Israelis victims or colonizers? Are the Palestinians victims or terrorists? What we perceive to be right is often distorted by our personalities and prejudices and personal experiences. So which politician we think should be locked up largely depends on which party we align ourselves with, which makes me wonder just how just our judgment is. And I think that points to some of the reasons we're so scared of judgment. First, we hate judgment today because we so often see it done so badly. We see broken systems that distort justice in favor of the rich and against the marginalized. Beyond that, recent DNA evidence demonstrates that even honest judges make honest mistakes that can free the guilty and imprison the innocent. Our justice system is among the best in the world, and yet is still grossly unfair, especially to the poor. On a much more personal level, we've all been the victims of harsh judgments and false accusations that hurt us and ruined relationships. And we've done the same thing. We've allowed our fear or prejudices to distort our judgments of others. Starting in middle school, it seems like people can just become so mean, criticizing and, and condemning each other without curiosity or compassion. So we've learned to fear judgment because it's so often damaging and so often wrong. So often, I, I have formed very strong opinions about a politician or an issue, only to discover later that 
despite my fervent convictions at the time, I was wrong. So the real problem is not that humans judge each other, but that we judge so badly. But a second reason we fear judgment is that we worry we'll be judged justly. I I know what's inside me, and I fear that if anybody else could see my secret thoughts and, and deeds, if they could see all of my lust and anger and envy and greed, they'd be appalled. I can hide most of that from people, but if God sees everything, then I'm in trouble. When Samuel promises, the Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's supposed to be encouraging, but if God judges my twisted heart, there's no way I'll make it. I fear judgment not because I'm afraid I won't get what I deserve, but because I'm afraid I will. So why did the writers of the Bible and the Apostles' Creed long for judgment? I want to show you that today. The Bible's very clear that Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. We read that all of a sudden, at a moment when no one expects it, our Lord will return. The living and the dead will all rise and see him together. Then comes judgment, which actually comes in two parts. The first judgment separates those who love God and want to live under his lordship both now and forever from those who persistently rejected God's invitation to a restored relationship. God will judge us. This sounds like bad news, but actually it's the beginning of the good news because I don't get to judge myself. And I don't get to judge you either. Your parents don't get to judge you. Your professors don't get to judge you. Your pastor, your boss, your spouse, your kids, your critics, your jealous friend, your neighbor, the devil, the media, the pollsters, the culture, people on Twitter, not the person sitting next to you right now. They may try to tell you what they think you're worth or or what you deserve, but it doesn't matter because in the end, even you don't get to judge you. So the Apostle Paul quipped, I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. Maybe you love yourself too much. Maybe you hate yourself too much. doesn't matter because no one gets to judge you except one. Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. At the heart of Psalm 9 is the Israelites' prayer for a better judge. They were eager for God to be our judge because we do it so badly. Do you see already why this is good news? Jesus, the one who loves you, the one who died for you, the the one who's interceding for you right now, he alone gets to judge. And he loves you too much to be impartial. Paul asked in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. 
Jesus will judge, but promises not to be fair. Thank God, because I know myself too much to want fairness. I want mercy. I don't want to be judged by a jury of my peers. They'll be just as hypocritical and unreliable as I am. I want to be judged by Jesus. And that's why Christians throughout the centuries were so encouraged every time they repeated with the creed, he will come back to judge the living and the dead. I, thank God I, I, I don't have to fear the judgments or opinions of anyone else. Knowing I'll be judged by Jesus frees me from fear because I've already worked out a deal with him. We see this over and over, but nowhere more clearly than in John 3.16 where we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. When I die, I'll face judgment, just like everyone. But I'll not be judged on the basis of my deeds. I'll be judged on the basis of Jesus' deeds. I won't get what I deserve. I'll get what he deserves. As we reviewed in the sermon two weeks ago, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I don't need to be afraid of this judgment. Hebrews 4 affirms, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's great news. But before you sit back and relax, you need to know that after this, the Bible describes a second judgment that's very different. Over and over, the Bible warns Christians who love Jesus and are saved by grace that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive what is due them for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. At that time, he'll bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of people's hearts. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. What do we do with this? Because it seems to contradict our common understanding of salvation by grace alone. But it seems that our deeds make a difference. We see this repeatedly, including in Luke 12. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden, that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. It's become popular these days to sport tattoos declaring, only God can judge me. I can judge his spelling, but only God can judge him. No one else has any right. But I wonder if this these people have thought through what this means. God, who sees everything, will judge me. It won't determine whether I inherit eternal life. That was settled in the first judgment. But for reasons I'll explain more in a few weeks, the way I lived in this life will reverberate in eternity, and every secret will be revealed. I imagine it's going to be something like the Oscars. No, no, not 
that. That's what most of us are afraid Judgment Day will be like. No, they'll be more like what the Oscars are supposed to be. So they'll be the Lifetime Achievement Award going to St. Benedict or Martin Luther King Jr. And, and the Best Leading Lady going to Mary or Mother Teresa. And then there'll be those less obvious awards that go to people who achieved amazing things that the rest of us didn't even notice. You forgave that friend who betrayed you? Ugh, beautiful. You resisted that temptation for decades. Bravo! You served quietly in Kids Rock or, or mentoring a prisoner with High Rock Beyond Bars? Wow! You gave sacrificially? You loved that stranger? Kept that commitment? Confessed your sin? Endured that persecution? Took a risk to share your faith in Jesus? Amazing. And Jesus will lead us as we all applaud. In ancient days, Olympians didn't receive medals. They received crowns. And that's the basis of the metaphor of receiving crowns in heaven. Everyone will see what was secret before and will be rewarded while everyone celebrates. But that's not all we'll see. Perhaps more privately, Jesus and I will review all the times I ignored the poor, lied, laughed at someone, gossiped, nursed a grudge, gave in to greed or, or lust, condoned injustice, disobeyed God's commands, failed to keep my word, or trust God to keep his. Perhaps I'll see someone who starved in this life because I wanted another gadget instead of giving more generously. I'll remember all the times that I made someone feel stupid or misused my power or, or protected my privilege in ways that diminished others. And I'll feel deeper sorrow than I could ever experience when my perspective was clouded by my selfishness. This judgment is coming from someone who loves me more than his own life. So while it would be embarrassing, it doesn't make me afraid. It makes me grieve my own evil and the way that I, that I hurt people. Jesus loves. And it'll make me appreciate even more Jesus's amazing grace. He saw that and he still saved me. Still loved me. For many of us, that will be a very difficult day. Revelation warns that Jesus will come back as a lion rather than a lamb and ends with Christ's warning, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what they have done. I, I think that first word is better translated not look, but look out because I've been very patient. But I'm going to come down there to praise the faithful and smack some other people back into shape. No sin will be swept aside. But no way you were sinned against will be ignored either. Like the ref in a basketball game, God promises to expose our evil and make it right. God will judge in order to bring justice. Many of those we regarded as least in this life will be held up as champions. While some of us who expected God to be as impressed with us as we are will be sorely disappointed. At that judgment, there will be both healing and joy 
as well as regret and sorrow, both, for all of us. But that regret won't last very long because God promises to wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Maybe this is why we read that many people so moved by our Lord's stunning love will lay down the crowns Jesus just gave them at his feet and say, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Our goodness isn't the story here. Your goodness is. Judgment is good news in a world as broken and corrupt as this one because it assures that evil, cruelty, discrimination, violence, and hate won't win in the end. They may seem to win sometimes, in the short run, but God promises to set things right again. I long for this, but many people have far more reason to look forward to that day. Years ago, I visited Bangkok, where I spent a day with a former sex worker who works with one of our sister churches there to rescue girls from that life. But there are uncountable thousands who are sold up to 10 times in a day. The woman I was with was sold for the first time at age two. And when I asked if that was common, she said, no, age five is normal. But that's not normal. It's twisted. It's wrong. If God loves, he must judge this evil. And that phrasing is key. God won't judge people, but evil. Too often we get that backward. We judge people, celebrating some and condemning others. But that's why our judgment can be so dangerous. Soviet political prisoner Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who must have been tempted to condemn his captors as entirely evil, acknowledged that the line between good and evil runs not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Many of us have responded to this truism by refusing to judge at all. But then we end up letting injustice go unchecked. Someone needs to speak up to protect little girls in Bangkok and child soldiers in Sudan and murdered civilians in the Middle East. Just as peace requires justice, justice requires judgment. Judgment, judgment isn't revenge. Judgment is love, especially when it's done by Jesus, the embodiment of love. So God's judgment isn't a threat. It's a promise that finally there will be justice. And that promise is what allows us to have peace while we're still waiting. God will judge. We can tell families in Israel, Gaza, Ukraine, and Lewiston, you're not forgotten. This evil will be accounted for. There will be judgment. Truth will come to light. And finally, all things will be made right. But in the meantime, God commands us to reflect his image by judging evil now before it does so much damage. According to the NIH, 1% of criminals are responsible for 63% of all crime. And the local police know exactly who they are because they keep getting arrested and keep being released. 
our failure to judge can have very real consequences. Alternatively, our failure to prosecute the small percentage of predatory cops allows them to keep doing damage and undermines public trust. At an international level, historians insist that the West's reluctance to bring judgment when Hitler occupied parts of Czechoslovakia is what emboldened him to try taking over the world, costing millions of lives, including Hitler's. And this is true more personally, too. Recently, my wife gently but clearly pointed out a, a pattern in me that was hurting her, our, our kids, and my relationships with others. She wasn't condemning me. She was trying to rescue me by exposing a sin that I, I couldn't see. It still stung, but I was so thankful because she judged my sin in a spirit of love, which allowed me to repent of it, stop repeating that pattern before it did more harm. We'll never experience peace, either internally, relationally, or internationally, if we're not willing to announce God's judgments against certain choices and systems that are hurting people and preventing real peace. But we're not called to judge who is evil. We're called to judge what is evil, or more precisely, what God said is evil. But we need to do that cautiously, knowing how often we get that wrong too. We need to ask in the covenant tradition, where is it written? Meaning, where exactly is that in the Bible? Because otherwise, we'll impose our culture, personality type, or, or personal preferences on others rather than pointing them to God's perfect law that leads to life. Different isn't necessarily deviant. So we need to offer our convictions with humility, curiosity, and compassion. Otherwise, we'll create injustice rather than confront it. We need to call evil what it is. But then rather than, con rather than condemn evildoers, we need to call them to repentance so they, they can find the same forgiveness and healing that we all need from Jesus. Now, that's a lot of theory and theology. So what does all of this mean for us this week? Let me suggest three things. First, if Jesus is our judge, then no one else is. So I don't have to worry much about what other people think about me. They may be able to help me see truths that I'm blind to, but their judgments about my value or destiny don't matter. I belong to Jesus. He created me. He loves me. He called me. He owns me. And he will save me. So only Jesus can judge me. Everything else is the mere opinions of other sinners. Jesus himself endured more injustice than anyone. The only perfect person who ever lived was punished in the most painful way possible. And yet we read, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He knew this was wrong. But at the right time, he knew that God would make it right. Now, our culture prefers a God of love to a God of justice. But love demands justice. The good news is that not only will evil be judged, but we who do evil will be judged by Jesus. Which means, in the word, words of St. John of the Cross, 
at the end of life, we shall be judged by love. Secondly, if Jesus is the judge, even though I fall short in so many ways, I don't have to be afraid. When I die, I deserve to stay dead. And if I were God, there's no way I'd want to put up with me forever. But I wasn't asked to decide that. And because of God's grace revealed in Jesus, I've been invited into eternal life. So I have no reason to be afraid anymore. What are you going to do? Kill me? That won't last. Finally, if Jesus is coming to judge, then the way that I live matters. Too many Christians have misunderstood the doctrine of grace to mean, I can do anything I please. As long as I love Jesus, he'll forgive me anyway. But if I'm not following him in this life, the Bible gives me no reason to assume I'll follow him into eternal life. So ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart for anything offensive. As we do that, we're asking the one who loves us to judge us in that love. Not to make us feel bad, but to free us from the sin that's holding us back. And don't just ask the Spirit. Ask your spouse. Ask those close to you what they see. And then be ready because they probably see things that you don't. But if you trust that they love you, You can trust them to judge you. And that judgment can lead to justice. And that justice can lead to peace. Given all that we've covered today, what does God call us to do now? It's not simply to believe in Jesus at a theoretical level, but to follow Jesus, which includes loving God by obeying him and loving others by serving them sacrificially, like Jesus does. That's why we keep saying that the Apostles' Creed is not a list of things we think. It's a pledge of allegiance to the Lord we love. And the Creed promises that Jesus will come to judge. None of us knows the day or the hour when Jesus will return, but God commanded us to care for others. So the scriptures warn us repeatedly, it'll be good for the servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. None of us know when that day will come, but it will come. So the Bible warns us over and over, be ready. How do we do that? Be ready by keeping short accounts in your relationships and forgiving sins. Be ready by serving sacrificially and noticing the needs of others. Be ready by tithing faithfully and giving generously. Be ready by living obediently and holding on to the hope we have in Christ. Be ready by resisting temptation even when you think that no one will notice. Be ready by confessing sin. Be ready by loving sinners and welcoming strangers. Be ready by avoiding sarcastic comments, needless complaints, or easy put-downs. Be ready by taking risks for the gospel and reaching out to your friends and neighbors. Be ready by keeping your commitments even when it hurts and laying aside your pride. Those things won't save us. Jesus will save us. But those things will matter immediately and forever. The city of Corinth was located in Greece where the Olympics had been a national obsession for centuries by the time that Paul wrote to the believers there. 
Referring to the incredible sacrifices and passion of those training for the games, Paul writes, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. As we close, I'd like to give you a moment for personal confession to Jesus. Have you tended to judge people, be quick to condemn others as evil or unworthy? You could confess that. Or maybe you've been unwilling to judge evil because it was easier just to go along with the crowd and keep your mouth shut. You could confess that. Ask the Spirit to examine our hearts. We're not judging ourselves, whether we're good or not, whether we're lovable or not. We don't get to make that judgment. Only Jesus does. And he loves you regardless of whether you think you deserve it. But we can see where that line of evil runs through our own hearts. And instead of trying to hide it, we can bring that to Jesus in confession so that we can find both his forgiveness and his healing power. Whatever you have to confess, let's do that in silence right now.